Welcome back to Hot Tea Hot Takes, where the tea is hot. And the takes are hotter. I'm Erin. And I'm Evangeline. And today, in light of the momentous occasion, I don't know if most of you outside the States know, but we've been through some things this past week, haven't we? Yeah, America has really undergone quite a a change in its leadership. I mean, you know, symbolic thus far, but (laughs) eventually it's going to be more permanent. Yes, and it is uh, quite an interesting... Uh, the whole thing has been very interesting, of course, with COVID and everything. You know, the ballots took longer to count, so it took longer to get the results. And now we have someone in office who doesn't want to admit reality. But, you know, it's um, it's definitely been an experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been quite a up and down thing, like a journey that I wasn't expecting in terms of what we saw in terms of how fast some states counted their ballots and how fast some states didn't or just how long it took. And then also... Uh, which states were, you know, closer to which party and, and, you know, which states went red and which went blue. And that has been a really surprising turn of events. There have been some that were a lot more Democratic than um, I would have ever guessed. And then there's some that went for Trump that I would have guessed maybe would have been Democratic. So I don't know. <laughs> it was definitely a surprising, a surprising week, but uh, ended well, at least for me. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> Yeah, And um, in sort of in light of that, we figured today, you know, it might be interesting to kind of look into sort of how music and politics have affected one another and um, in the realm of protest and and uh, uh, political messaging put out via music. Right. Um, today, we're going to talk through a little bit, just a short history of protest music in America um, so that we can kind of like set the stage for the protest music that people are making today um, and political music in general, music that makes a statement um, about something going on in the country at the time. Um, uh, the earliest stuff that I could find um, for America, and this is really only American protest music, it's not going to cover any other countries um, because this is what I'm most familiar with, but um, going back to the 19th century, you know, anytime, honestly, something was happening in the country, there was probably going, or something controversial at least, um, there was probably going to be people writing music about it. Um, if there was a decision being made by the government or the president, there were definitely going to be uh, people uh, making statements about it in form of art, which is really has been true for you know all of humanity. Um, so you know, in the 19th century, we saw songs being put out that were about the Civil War um, and war in general. And there were songs in the Revolutionary War as well, but this is where we really get the first kind of like um, the the most well documented ones. Yeah, we yeah that one's a little more a little more recent, I think. <laughs> no, um, no, it's, it's from the Civil War. Well, the the Land of Traitors version. Yeah, it's from the Civil War. Is it really? It's the one that you, the Union Soldier sang. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she's referring to uh, there's a song on TikTok that people have been using to kind of. Uh, bash people who continue to use the confederate flag and it's the actually the what the union soldiers sang yeah. um, i mean they took the southerners did it first but the union the unioners did make their own version at the same time oh that's so awesome um and then like uh there are other topics that they sang about was the abolition of slavery and women's suffrage um a group i had never heard of but were very influential was the hutchinson family singers um they became well known for their song supporting abolition it was actually a group of uh, white men, they were all, you know, related in some way, I believe, but um, they sang about abolition, temperance, politics, war, women's suffrage. They were pretty progressive for their time. 
Um, and they actually sang at the White House for the president, uh, John Tyler, and they knew Abraham Lincoln as well. And they kind of set the stage for later protest uh, artists such as, you know, Pete Seeger and Bob Dylan, who we'll talk about later. But um, they were very, um, they were very prominent and controversial for some people because they sang about things that were hot topics in the country at the time. Um, And then, of course, spirituals often had protest elements, too, um, especially when uh, slaves would use the imagery of the Hebrews in the Bible to compare slavery in the U.S. to that search for freedom from the Egyptians. So songs like Oh Freedom and Go Down Moses, it always has a lot of imagery in that. Um, And they would often, you know, sing them while they were working, but also to kind of uh, bolster each other up. I know that there's also been spiritual protest. I don't remember which one this is called, but uh, it's like it kind of runs down what the treatment of slaves is they're like you know they take the meat they give us the skin they take the this and they get give us like the worst part mm-hmm. of it. like they basically you know just kind of complaining about what their situation is um, which is you know it, it kind of just it's almost like light-hearted but it kind of you know gives you a glimpse into sort of what they were dealing with right you know? exactly and, and documenting their situation yeah. um then as you move into the 20th century the major themes that we see over the entire 20th century were the labor movement, union, uh, pro-union music, uh, the Great Depression, the Civil Rights Movement, and the Vietnam War. Um, of course, there were a lot of other topics too, especially like feminism and environmentalism, but, um, and of course, there were always songs protesting wars as we went along, um, but those were the biggest themes. Um, early on in the 20th century, members of the Industrial Workers of the World, um, which was a pro-union group, that uh, supported workers um, used music as a form of uh, pro-union protest um, songs that were about the working man and their, you know, their struggle and how hard it was, um, especially when it was a time in America where there were not a lot of regulations on work hours and safety and it was often dangerous jobs and long hours. Um, in World War One, there was protest music such as uh, I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier, um, when the Great Depression hit, we had a, a prominent folk singer called Aunt Molly Jackson, um, and she wrote songs such as Hungry Ragged Blues and Poor Miner's Farewell. Oh, I, um, think, I, found, I think I saw that in the, the museum in oh. Charlotte. Um, so I think I was reading And she would go when they were striking sometimes and sing with them, which so she was very uh, she was very much an activist. I, I would like to say you mentioned World War One. And it's um, also in, like in the same way that we've got you know this political event, we've got mm-hmm. music that is to protest the government. We also have a lot of propaganda music, especially yes. during World War One and World War Two. Um, uh, one that comes to mind is uh, oh, over there, over there, over there. Yes, uh, yeah. yes. Um, and over there was a um, was a song that was basically uh, trying to encourage young men to mm-hmm. enlist to um, take you know to go over there and fight. And it was. It came out in World War One. I, I think it was reused in World War Two. But the funny thing about it is, there's also like I think a Polish version of it, because I guess they were using it to like get other troops involved. I don't know. It was, it was interesting. Yeah. It definitely originated in the United States. Well, I mean, really, music has always been used for conveying a message and um, and working up emotion in its audience, and that can be true for people who are like anti-government or protesting something or pro-government. Uh-huh. Um, 
there was like, I mean, you'll see this as we move through the 20th century, but music was often used to stir up patriotic sentiment. Like, um, you know, I, you know, all these songs, especially when they would send um, people to entertain the troops, they would sing these patriotic songs and Irving Berlin wrote a lot of songs like that as well. Um, and, you know, and the Andrews sisters would sing them, bring Crosby, Bob Hope, and, um, you know, all of those people had their own motives, but the music was to uh, stir up the sentiment that would give these people bravery and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, you'll see that all the way through the 20th century. So you'll see, like, especially in the 19th century, there were so many instances of music being used to, um, like, tell the story of the working person. Um, and then we get into uh, music about racial discrimination, like Fats Waller's uh, What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue, and also Strange Fruit, recorded by Billie Holiday. Oh, that's Yeah, very, um, yeah, very dark, but very, um, they just, very, like, uh, vivid in its imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have Woody Guthrie, very influential, uh, you'll know him for This Land is Your Land, um, and Dust Bowl Blues. Um, he had some of the biggest, like, pro-union labor movement songs. He had, um, you'll, and you'll see in pictures of him, on his guitar, he had a sticker that read, This Machine Kills Fascists, which is basically the most metal thing I've ever heard. I know, it's pretty epic. <laughs> um, and then somebody I just learned about, who I can't believe I've never heard of him, his name is Josh White. He was a black singer, but he was really close to FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt. In fact, some people say he'd had the closest relationship to a president of any black person, Ooh. which I could not be true now, yeah. <laughs> but that was like at the time, mm-hmm. um, at the time he was very close to the two of them. Um, and he had so many singing opportunities at the white house, which for the forties is pretty amazing. Um, his album, Joshua White and his Carolinians, colon, Chain Gang, was the first race record ever forced upon white radio stations, um, which if you listen to our R&B episode, you know, yes. race music was, you know, the, the early name for R&B, but his was very politically, you know, charged. Um, and he, you know, there was controversy over that. Of and then he, <laughs> <I imagine. laughs> But he kept going. He was very persistent. He performed at the inauguration at ni- in 1941, um, and his group performed at the White House multiple times, and then he wrote even more songs that were anti-segregation later on, so he was a very cool person. I would recommend looking up more about his life, because he had even more cool stuff than he did. Um, the 40s also brought songs that were like nuclear panic, like anti-atomic bomb. One called Old Man Adam is the biggest one from that time. Wow. And it was sort <laughs> of like... You know, they channeled that kind of fear that Hiroshima and Nagasaki people were like, uh, obviously in America, we weren't as affected by those. But after Pearl Harbor and all of that, there was so much talk about the atomic bomb and nuclear war that songs were written about that. Cold War. um, Yeah, there were definitely some Cold War songs, too. Um, uh, I think I have some examples of them. Um, Then in the 1960s, we have uh, some of, like, really... I don't want to say the height because there was like definitely peaks of protest music all throughout the 20th century, but it's hard to say that it's hard not to say that the 60s were the peak of protest music. Um, yeah. Bob Dylan obviously was a key figure. Um, songs like The Times There Are a Change In, you've heard that probably. Uh, Masters of War Blowing in the Wind. Um, he was often at rallies, including the March on Washington, which he performed at with Joan Baez and. Um, 
he wrote about Emmett Till and Medgar Evers. Like, I didn't realize he had so many songs that were specifically referencing uh, uh, issues during the civil rights movement. I thought it was a little more metaphorical, but I learned something new about him for sure. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, I think I have that experience when I look at a lot of like popular songs from the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh yeah, this sounds like a fun song. And you look it up and it's like, oh hey, there was a whole like thing it's going dark, on there. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I mean, but the '60s, you know, were a time of great upheaval for the United States for sure. Yeah. And um, I think it was, you know, it was inevitable that the music was gonna was going to reflect that. Uh, we in our rock episode, you know, you heard us talk a lot about the different styles of rock that emerged from this era and the kinds of uh, things that they've addressed. And I think that in some ways, you know, some of them were poppy. Rock music may have been a, I don't know, this is a little bit of a speculation, but it may have been a reaction to more heavily charged music that was being put out by folk singers at the time. Um, Because, you know, surf music is kind of the polar opposite of, you know, a song about Emmett Till. Like, it's like, it's very, very like surfing USA. It does not have a lot of like weight to it politically. It doesn't really make you think that much. Um, so things were very, you know, there were wide polarization in the U.S. at that point. Um, he wrote a song called Masters of War, which some people think is about Vietnam, but he came out and said that it was really more about, it was more closer to the Eisenhower time where it was against the military industrial complex. I think he really could see where Vietnam was going to go kind of before it even started. He's just very pacifist, uh, as a person. Um, then we have Pete Seeger and Phil Ox. I hope I'm saying that right. O-C-H-S. Um, very important protest singers from the time. Uh, songs like Turn, Turn, Turn by Pete Seeger and then I Ain't Marching Anymore by Phil Ox. They're very, like, um, commenting on the way that the world felt like it was very, uh, it was changing rapidly and it felt kind of, um, especially, like, with the draft of Vietnam, um, and how much things changed in the 60s. There was so much upheaval going on. Um, during this time, uh, many freedom writers also used spirituals as protest songs that they would sing, especially call and response um, at rallies and um, sit-ins and things like that. Um, it kind of calls back to the um, more of the work songs and the training mm-hmm. songs. Yeah, very much. Before. Like um, They would sing those songs in the workroom to kind of keep in rhythm, but also cooperative situation. situation and I think that you can see that reflected like the old gospel style from churches and from African American spirituals to the modern uh, poetry of the more the civil rights transferring yeah. some of that same ancestral connection yeah absolutely um, and speaking of uh, you know this this era uh, the soul singers or the R&B singers of the time um, like Sam Cooke, Aretha Franklin Otis Redding um, James Brown, Curtis Mayfield, Nina Simone were all writing songs that were, that. yeah, <laughs> that were very, um, you know, even if they weren't maybe so always like, you know, out there, um, they were a little more poetic. They were definitely in, you know, response to what was happening in the country. So oh, of course, you know, well. yeah, you some of them were definitely, yeah, <laughs> Nina Simone's were much more direct, like to be young, gifted and black, um, but then Aretha Franklin had Respect. Um, Sam Cooke had A Change Is Gonna Come, which is one of my favorite songs oh, ever. Yes. Um, James Brown had Say It Loud and Black and I'm Proud. So it's these songs that are like pro um, 
black lives and black um, kind of building each other identity. up at this black time. Identity. Black identity. Like, yeah, the whole, like, like, again, it's, some of it was, was um, coexisting some of the Afrocentrism movement mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s. Um, my father and his siblings grew up in that time. They still have, like, in, in my um, aunt's bed- bedroom at my grandma's house, she still has, like, the I'm Black and I'm Proud poster mm-hmm. and, like, the pennant and stuff like that in the Afro thing. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's very cool. Yeah, it's, really, it's really a blast from the past. But, yeah, I mean, it was such a big thing because, I mean, they were in college. So, you know, college was, like, a reality. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we're, you know, in, embracing our, our Blackness and, and the mm-hmm. Black pride. Like, that was when they started reclaiming Afros and, yes. you know, uh, actively being black rather than just sort of assimilating yeah. to your eurocentric standards um which we see some something of a resurgence of that today yeah exactly mm-hmm. uh you kind of saw that when we talked about um black is king yes mm-hmm. um that oh, absolutely. that more uh, yeah afrocentric and and embracing looks and fashion and hairstyles that have been kind of like um, looked down upon by white, you know, groups in, in America and saying, like, no, this isn't good enough. We're going to embrace this. Um, so, you know, finishing out the 20th century, we had many protest songs written about Vietnam. Um, Bobby Darin and Jimi Hem- Hendrix uh, come to mind. Mm-hmm. Then we had anti-Reagan policy songs, um, such as Bruce Springsteen. Which, yeah. yeah. Stan Reagan we don't Stan Reagan in this house. <laughs> um, I don't know that much about Bruce Springsteen. I hate to say it. I know everybody the big loves boss him. Or whatever his name is. The boss, the boss man. Um, I don't personally love his voice, but I, don't I, do, I do know that he had some important songs for this period. And then we get to rap and hip hop, which we've talked a little bit about this before, but it was so influential um, when they were they began to pr- protest discrimination and, bl- and police brutality through rap and hip hop. Um, so really, from the very beginning, it's been political, which is why it's so funny to me when people say stop being political in your rap songs yeah. like it's it started that way um you to start out like if you don't really know much about this i would go listen to grandmaster flash and the sugar hill gang the oh, message yeah. it's a long song but it is oh, a very good. very influential song um at the beginning he says it's like a jungle sometimes it makes me wonder how i keep from going under and a lot of the songs from that period kind of talk about the poverty and the um la- like the hopelessness of cities that were you know or urban centers and cities um that were suffering and were um you know just you know he talks about you know broken glass on the ground and feeling like he is trapped there um and especially new york at this point um in the 70s and 80s um then we have nwa fuck the police of course a song which has been weirdly, spookily accurate for this year yeah. and the last few years and yes, all indeed. of the years. I mean, let's say, I mean, it kind of, for some people, has never not been accurate. But. Exactly. <laughs> but when you listen to it now, it sounds like it could have been written by, you know, somebody in 2020 about things that happened in 2020, which is really, really sad. Um, but it's just a powerful song. And then we have, like, Public Enemy, Fight the Power, and songs like that um and during the cold war um there were protest songs against again nuclear um did i say that right nuclear yes okay i don't i always am afraid to say nuclear nuclear (laughs) Nuclear. um about like you know nuclear war then we had rage against the machine who we've talked about before 
um, who made songs about corporate America, the government, police oppression, <laughs> and imperialism, um, which is awesome. An absolutely hilarious video I saw on Twitter the other day. There was like, so I'm sure for, there's been like some Trump fans who have gone down to various cities to protest the results of the election. And I think this was back when they were still counting. They were in like Philly or something. But um, several there was several Trump supporters that were gathered around. They were just having a little dance party, and they were draped in the blue in the blue thin blue line flag yeah, and had like blue lives matter signs and everything like that. But they were bopping and dancing to uh, Rage Against the Machines, uh, Killing in the Name. And I'm just like, it's so funny. Bruh, they don't this know is aggressively anti cop. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> They're like, well, for us, the machine is the government. Yeah. But they didn't listen yeah, to the like, music. It's literally directly talking about cops being like members of the KKK. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, that is so ironic because that is the opposite of the message that Rage Against the Machine was trying to convey. Um, and then at the end of the 20th century and into the 21st, we have like feminist music. We have music that was critical of Bush and the war on Iraq, most notably at Green Day uh, with American Idiot. Yes. Um, oh, and there was also the Madonna album. The Madonna, the, the, weird the, the, Madonna the album. The ill Madonna album. <laughs> that was probably a mistake. American Life was her like foray into political com- commentary music, and it kind of ended her relevance career-wise. Like, she's... It was a weird move from Madonna. Yeah. If you th- if you, from what you know, I know about Madonna. Uh, specifically, like, an entire concept album politics is not necessarily what I thought she would do. Yeah, and well, the thing is, like, you could almost argue that it was sort of logical, progressively. You know, she's, she'd gradually become a little bit less right. vapid as her career had gone on. However, her approach to it, like, it was barely a concept album. Like, she had a couple of ideas, and then it quickly faded into just, like, a Madonna album. It's mostly just her complaining about, you know, how she had reached the quote-unquote American dream, and she felt empty inside, which, sure, that's a valid thought that, like, many celebrities have had. However, the American dream is not necessarily being rich and famous. It's just, like, you know, having a successful career or whatever. And to relate her, like, problems of, I'm so, you know, tired of having a personal chef and a personal staff. It's yeah. Like, those aren't relatable problems, Madonna. <laughs> like, we can't be like, oh, man, I hate that I have a personal chef. Like, <laughs> yeah, in her song, American Dream, she she makes a lot of statements, but unfortunately, they're not as relatable as I think she wanted them to be. Because she says, like, you know, should I lose some weight? Am I going to be a star? You know, this type of modern life, is it for me? Um, and in the music video, isn't she, like... Isn't there a lot of different countries' flags and she's yeah. like in a military uniform and yeah. the messaging is confusing because I think she's kind of trying to she's trying to fit in in Hollywood, which is just not what normal people have. Yeah, to that's do. not like most people aren't worried about picking a stage name. And like when she makes it, because originally she had another video that was much more graphic and it had like imagery of soldiers getting their limbs blown off and stuff because uh, they're about to go into the Iraq War. Right, and then she backed off, quote unquote, because she did she thought it would be insensitive. Madonna has never worried about being insensitive prior to that, but I think she was afraid she was going to get Dixie Chick because that had just yeah, happened. Right. They, um, was, yeah, they got kind of yeeted off the platform for a couple of years there after they openly condemned the Iraq War. Um, right. But yeah, it's just like, you know, you're you're dressed up like a soldier and you're marching around. You got like communist imagery like Che Guevara or whatever. But then also it's a bunch of random countries so it's not really a direct critique of the United States. And then the words are just you complaining about the troubles of being rich, which nobody cares about. So it's just like, it's a mess. Because she says <laughs> later in the song, 
Three nannies, an assistant, and a driver in a jet, a trainer and a butler, and a bodyguard, or five, a gardener and a stylist. Do you think I'm satisfied? I'd like to express my extreme point of view. I'm not a Christian, and I'm not a Jew. I'm just living out the American dream, and I just realized that nothing is what it seems. And she wraps this whole part. She Which, wraps this, which is embarrassing by itself. <laughs> it's hard for me to call this a protest song when you're listing all the things that make you privileged in this country. I'm a one percenter complaining about a person. Yeah, it's staff. a little rough. I, I like, I, I uh, applaud her for the instinct, but I think it was a little poorly executed. Um, well, I mean, we know that Madonna, that's kind of a record for being like a monstrous narcissist, and it really hasn't changed, because even in 2020, I know she was one of the celebrities that people called out for in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, making really tone-deaf statements about what it was like to be in quarantine. She was sitting in, like, her gigantic bathtub in the middle of her mansion, like, you know, this is just the great equalizer. We're all the same now. And I'm like, no, we are not. She's been a little out of touch for a while, (laughs) I think. People who've been rich for a long time, I think, start to not know what people want to hear. Um, so now we're up to present day, and I thought we could talk a little bit about music that we find uh, to be protest music or is more explicitly protest music for, you know, what's going on today. And it feels like there's a lot of things to protest right now. Um, most specifically, a lot of the songs I could think of were specifically about racial justice. Um, but there's others. There's other uh, music like that. Do you have any favorites? Um, yeah, I'm sure, like, I don't think about it, but I, um... Definitely, you know, think that there's been some more music that kind of makes an attempt at least to kind of critique the modern system, the vapidity, the vapidity of um, celebrity in a more in a slightly more in touch way. Like uh, Kanye West is doing some stuff about that, and which you know, uh, it's not always in touch either. But I think he kind of grasped the idea of like how he's like wealthy, but there are people who are starving in other countries, and mm-hmm. he's about like. The ideas like Katy Perry had sort of a self-aware song with um, Slave to the Rhythm, which a lot of people didn't like. I liked it okay. I mean, I think it was kind of ironic because it was like a dance song, but it was like, you know, dancing is bad and you should feel bad for nothing. Yeah, it's about being brainwashed sort of by, you know, current music and technology and then it's like a dance bop. So it's a little... It's like one of those ironic things where it's like, haha, the message is that, you know, you're a slave to the rhythm and I'm going to make a dance song about it. The question I was going to ask, you know, and and bring up is has protest music been commercialized? Yes. Because, (laughs) you know, like... I'm not not to say that in in America's history some of the, this music ha- wasn't commercialized, but when we were kind of like when people were writing songs about their friends and neighbors, people who were suffering in factories or coal mines or people who were, uh, you know, experiencing racial violence, and they were writing it just sort of out of their raw emotion, it was very authentic. And I think there is that music still being written today, but. The blinds have been blurred a little bit when you can tell that somebody was encouraged by a, a label mm-hmm. to write a, a mildly controversial or just like a statement song mm-hmm. um, because they know it's going to blow up. Blowing up in my mind right now, which is, well, I have two that kind of crossed my mind. Uh, one is Earth by Lil Dicky, which I'll get to in a second. Oh I've got some gosh. thoughts on that. But first, I want to talk about Taylor Swift and uh, You Need to Calm Down. Which yeah, to me yeah. is the oh pinnacle yeah. of misguided uh, song. Well, first of all, it's well, like. Well, tell us what it's about. Yeah, right? okay, yeah, yeah, I will explain. Well, first of all, so when I first listened to it, you need to comment when she first released it, it was just a lyric video. She didn't even do a music video yet. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like watching it, and I'm like, okay, you know, this sounds like a pretty typical Taylor song or whatever. It sounds like, um, 
you know, uh, like her typical haters. I don't care about what you right. think about me, whatever, in the first verse. But then um, the second verse says something about uh, why are you mad when you could be glad? And it was spelled with two A's. And I was like, what mm-hmm. is it? Mm-hmm. Like the gay group? Like what's song? going on here? And then the next verse, or at the end of that verse, it says, the shade never made anybody less gay. And it's like, oh my she's really making this a, a gay anthem like this is like first of all you spent the entire first verse talking about yourself that had nothing to do with gay rights and then you, you just kind of threw that in out of nowhere and then the third verse is just about like hey girl stop fighting and like you know support each other in the, in the, in the actual video she has a bunch of famous gay celebrities in it including like you know um not RuPaul, but uh, what's his name? Yeah, the dude. Todrick. Todrick, yeah. Todrick Hall and uh, Ellen DeGeneres. And, like, first of all, the, the commercial Just, days. you know, commercial like, Yeah, but let's be honest. I'm sorry, but, I'm like... I'm surprised you didn't have we, Neil Patrick Harris <laughs> Exactly. We all know who the commercial gays are. Like, the 10 gay people that, like, general America accepts. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's like, she had the, the, the famous commercial gays in there, and then she was dancing around, and, like, you know... And then at the end, it ended with her and Katy Perry, like, making up or whatever, in, like, a burger costume or something. It was weird. And I'm just like, okay. So we've gone from a general Taylor song about dunking on her haters to gay is fine and the Westboro Baptist Church is bad, which, like, no one disagrees with that. But, like, you're saying, you know, this is, I don't think that gay, like, homophobia is shade. Like, I think that people who are dealing with, like, actual oppression and persecution for yeah. being gay, it's a little bit deeper than shade and then and then the end last verse is kind of also still about taylor and like her personal beef with katie perry which nobody cares about like two rich girls fighting over nothing who cares and so it's just kind of like i feel like taylor kind of lacks the self-awareness to really make a song with that kind of context that and not circle it back around to her experiences it felt very shallow to me it yeah. felt very uh, cash grabby because she yeah. knew that People would be like, oh, she cares about the gays. Yeah. Like, and it had been so, she had never really made a statement on that. And she had a lot of gay fans, but she had never, I mean, she was certainly, I don't think anyone got the impression she was homophobic, but she had never directly, yeah, like, no. made any statements about gay marriage or really anything political. And so it was It like, did feel like she was equating homophobia, though, to, like, uh, hate comments on yes, YouTube, yes, which exactly. is, like, it's way more than <laughs> exactly. that. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it was like, calm down. <laughs> yeah, like, like calm down. Isn't cool. It's that's, like, lame, you guys. Like, you need to calm down and chill. Quit shading me. Like, girl, I don't think people are worried about getting kicked out of their house if yeah. their parents find out they're gay. It's not about shade. <laughs> I personally think that that song at the beginning of 1989 where she talks about just, like, you know, boys and boys and girls and girls, that was, like, more powerful to me than that whole song. Like, because it had been so... She just kind of worked it in. I mean, it's not even, like, that great of a statement, but it's still better than a whole song about don't throw shade at these people. Like, I don't know. I think that that was a failed a failed experiment on her part and yeah. she got a lot of praise from a lot of people for it and yeah. a lot of hate from a lot of people so yeah it was like bare minimum like you know bare like minimum. bare minimum quote-unquote activism i'm just like i mean it, uh, it's nice that you like don't hate gay people but like your whole statement just like let's all just dance and homophobia is just a couple of like lamos like like some uh, todd in the shadows pointed out it's like you know you got the imagery of the people holding the signs and uh-huh. like they're like you know clearly supposed to be like stand-ins for westboro baptist church but it's like the average person who's like gay isn't worried about Westboro West Baptist, Baptist Church. Like Church. It's a bunch of random crazy people they'll probably never meet. They're worried about their own individual like people that they know. Like it's right. not like homophobia is just relegated to that that handful of people that almost everybody agrees are just crazy. Like it's just it's a lot deeper than that. Exactly, <laughs> and I think that um, it is popular to make songs that are. Um, 
you know, for a group of people um, or anti-something, but not to an extent that you could really criticize specific people, criticize specific issues or issues that you think that the majority of your base is not going to agree with. So nominally progressive, but like, (laughs) yeah, someone who I think is actually a more meaningful um, kind of activist for the gay community is Lady Gaga because she has put her money where her mouth is. Mm -hmm. She has donated, and I'm not saying that Taylor Swift hasn't done this, but she didn't come out and and be like, hello, I'm a gay icon, because, you know, she didn't have to. Her songs had, you know, themes and told stories that gay people could, you know, relate to. Yeah, even though she's not gay, but... Born this way, like, ten years ago. Yes, And, and it wasn't so overt, it wasn't like, she didn't have to say it. Because they, you know, the lyrics were deep enough that it, you know, attracted people. And once she found, once she knew that she was um, so beloved in that community, she really poured her heart into it in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think that that's a better way to do it. It doesn't feel so, like, out of the blue. Because, like, you know, Taylor Swift has dropped hints that she's, like, not homophobic for a while, um, but to kind of just come out of the blue and be like, bam, here I am, like, I'm gonna make this song. I'm dancing with Todrick Hall and Ellen DeGeneres and all freaking people. <laughs> I don't know why that feels so shallow to me. It just feels so shallow. I mean, I just, I, I know I'm harping on Ellen a little bit, but I'm just like, I really do mean, like, you know, the commercial gays. Like, Ellen is just one of those people where, yes, she certainly made strides for gay people in the 90s. I'm not taking that away from her. Like, it was big for her to come out and be openly gay on a TV show in the 90s. But at this point, it's almost like she's the gay one that your that your conservative mom is fine with. Okay, like, with you know, exactly. Like, like, because they've watched her on her show yeah. for a long time, and they know that she's not threatening. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, you... And, and even RuPaul at this point yeah, is, yeah, a, is a pretty... Is a pretty um, safe gay. Safe gay. And also, he's kind of transphobic, but we're not going to get into that. Um, yeah, I mean, he he and Ellen are kind of an older guard. Yeah. Um, like, you know, Patrick Harris is not going to upset anybody, yeah, exactly. really. Um, and there's nothing against these people. It's just that, you know, it's it's almost funny that she kind of just picked these people who were the most commercially acceptable yeah, the most commercially gay people she could find. Not threatening. Like, yeah. it's, like, it's like when you do, like, you know, a racism thing, but you pick, like, you know, Eddie Murphy or something like just somebody, somebody well look it's just a goofy funny guy he's black I, how could black. you be mad at him it's, it's a donkey <laughs> like no well uh yeah I feel like we'll talk about earth yeah too. okay yes I was okay so earth I've got a whole other rant about that so Lil Dicky who if you all know is a rapper and he's a um He's a rapper and he uh, talks comedian? about comedian question mark who makes jo- well. First of all, his main joke is that he has a small penis, which is where well, he gets his so name old. from, and that's just his whole joke. That's like one of his only jokes. His I don't joke, think it's that funny. Yeah, it's not funny. It wasn't funny the first time. It's certainly not funny when your whole personality is built around it. His second joke is that he's Jewish, and so he can make again it's not a great joke. <laughs> exactly. And he makes you know he says like Jewish slurs and stuff like that, which I mean okay, oh my that's your claim. I'm not going to repeat some of the things that he said, but like, you know, okay, I don't know if a humble Jew comedy is really the way you know, like, It feels like old-fashioned to me, but okay. And, 
um, so yeah, he I mean, well, I already had a grudge against him because he released that god awful song with Chris Brown. But first of all, anybody who works with and legitimizes Chris Brown at this point is already kind of on my hit list. Like I'm just like mad because like stop stop enabling this man. He's an awful person. But like he may release that uh, Freaky Friday song and I was and a big part of that song I will say is that he and Chris Brown switched bodies. Yeah, and he talks a lot about how excited he is that he can say the N word now. Yeah, which feels real cringy. And he also well that's cringy. He also says uh, no one's hating on me because I'm black on my controversial past. I'm like. You mean the beating multiple women pass, Chris? Like, that's the, more than a controversial pass. Like, what the hell? Um, yeah, because so you mean yeah. when Chris jumps into yeah, Lil Dicky's body. Is like, yeah, exactly. Lil Dicky's like, no one hating on me because I'm black or my controversial past. I'm going to go and watch a movie and relax. And I'm like, it's like, like, nobody should hate you because you're black. However, yeah. you have committed many crimes. Exactly. That's why I hate you. You're a misogynist, Chris. <laughs> but yeah, so that song sucked the best time I've heard that song. But then he released Earth, I think, I guess last year. And, uh, it was a big, so it was basically a charity, celebrity charity album, which we talked about that a little bit when we did the Halloween episode about how, well, we, and we teased that we're going to talk about it when we talk about where, uh, we know it's Christmas at Christmas time, but, you know, charity singles, which are corny and often bad, um, and <laughs> they're fun to make fun of, like, like, uh, We Are the World is just a hilarious disaster, but, um, you know, Earth was kind of unique because I think they were kind of making fun of the charity single, but, like, it just, he got a bunch of celebrities to come and play animals, and the joke, his whole joke was just that they're funny, they're cute animals, and they're doing gross things. Like, he makes Justin Bieber, uh, he's a baboon, and he sings uh, about his anus, and I'm just like, Yeah, okay. I was gonna read these lyrics, but I'm not gonna read them. They're a little gross. Yeah, they're, they're really bad. But, I mean, it's also so middle school. He's like, hey, I'm a zebra. Nobody knows what I do, but I look pretty cool. Am I white or black? And well, the like, funny thing is that he has Ariana Grande sing that part. I don't think that was intentional. Uh, that's but it is, I don't, th- I don't think he's clever enough to have made that intentional, but it is kind of funny because Ariana did I'm a common, I'm a common fungus. We love you, Africa. Like, yeah. What do you, oh, this is like, like, he wrote this when he was high and he was like, this is a good song. I'm going to raise money. He said, first of all, he says, we love you, Africa. He treats it like it's a whole, co- he says, we love you, India. We love you, Africa. Okay. Africa's not a country first off. So problem. And then he says, uh, we love the Chinese. We forgive you, Germany. Which is another Ooh. Jew joke and a Holocaust joke, and I'm like, okay, again, that's your history. I'm not going to tell you this you can't is make those not, jokes, but it's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> this is what we shouldn't be doing in terms of protest songs. <laughs> Why do you say that we are the world is a hilarious disaster? I mean, it's just like it's a corny song. I mean, it's like the it's got a lot of people on it. It's just a yeah. corny, goofy song. But really, the hilarious disaster part comes from the remake of it because you know they made a remake in like I guess 2010 or something. Whenever the uh, uh, earthquakes happened in Haiti. With like Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus and a bunch of Wycliffe John and a bunch of other people, um, and that was pretty funny. I mean, we, we are the world, the original. Yes, it's got a lot of great talent. It's got Michael Jackson. It's got you know, yeah, uh, you know, it's got good people in it. It's just not a good song. It's just kind of goofy, but in my opinion. But um, I think that all charity singles are like they're, they're well meaning. Be, they're they're a little goofy. <laughs> they're gonna be a little goofy. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about some good protest songs like. You know, one of the ones is often, you know, written about now is Beyonce's Formation, yes. which is a very, um, it's a song that is written for black women. Um, and, you know, in the lyrics, it's not necessarily as, you know, overt, but when you watch her music video, which is truly, I don't know how many times I've watched that music video. It is an incredible music video. Um, there is some obvious, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter imagery mm-hmm. in there, especially... Yeah. Um, 
I think it also references, if I'm not incorrect, like aftermath of Katrina a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember her, like she's on top of a police car and it's surrounded by water and then they have signs that say stop killing us and the music video is a lot more overt. Mm-hmm. But and her song Freedom yes. that came out the next album was also pretty overt. She has a Kendrick Lamar verse on that one. Also she has Well that's the same album. It's yeah, yeah. yeah. She also has the mother of Trayvon Martin and I can't remember what other people are in her um in the in the, the, yeah. in mm-hmm. the, the what's it called? The the, the album which felt almost felt more like a movie yeah um yeah she has the visual album she has um a lot of really um women black women in those videos who had you know lost children to police brutality so she was very intentional with a lot of the imagery she did in that and also in black is king um that was the album where well the verse formation is the album that where beyonce turned black for a lot of people that's the time where like someone said you know if you want to just subtly find out whether somebody voted for trump just ask them what beyonce they like the old beyonce or new beyonce Beyonce. (laughs) exactly Because she started to really, I mean, Freedom is a great song. Um, I Forward, song. I love Forward yeah. too, um, which I think is James Blake. But um, And then Freedom has Kendrick Lamar, which is actually convenient because uh, I was about to talk about him. Um, I would say it's hard for me not to say that To Pimp a Butterfly and Damn were both had themes of protest throughout. I wouldn't necessarily call them completely protest albums, but... Man, you like you can't get away from you know politics and uh, racial injustice in his music, um, which is why I think he's one of the most important voices for that right now. Um, songs like "All Right," which is just a very kind of defiantly like "We'll make it through this" kind of song, um, and the video is great for that too. And then um, uh, on you know "To Pimp a Butterfly" has kind of more. He talks more about his. Um, connections back to the um where he where he grew up in compton and and all of that and um and even on damn too he talks about like the connections with violence and how he can't get away from having killed people and having this kind of haunting of him even if he's in another world feeling that kind of like between the two and you know i'll talk about this in just a second but um he has some great songs on Damn, which are, you know, some of my favorite protest songs. Um, but I just wanted to finish out, like, in 2020, we had a lot of songs for the Black Lives Matter protests that came out, and also just, a, like, mildly about quarantine. I mean, Anderson Pock had a song called Lockdown, which is really more about Black Lives Matter. Um, NYG just had a song called FTP, um, which you can probably guess what that means. Um, <laughs> Fuck the Police, which is actually, you know, I really like it. It's not quite as iconic as the original, but, um, and then another like newer song that I love is called Just by Run the Jewels. Um, it is such an interesting song because it's about, um, wealthy black people now and how so much of the system is still controlled by white people. Like the, the big chorus line is look at all the slave masters posing on your dollars. So it's like, even if you have made it in this country as a person of color, there's still this lingering um, history of being enslaved. Yeah, well, especially when the when you know to make it to bring it to current events, when the black people who have quote unquote made it, my aunt and I were talking about this actually, and have money, like they start to kind of turn their backs on the community. Some of them, not a, not a minute, but um, like you know, recently with their whole issues of like um, 
they're like uh, Trump t- taking those publicity shots with Lil Wayne recently, where yeah. he was like, yeah, yeah like I, I support Trump. It's or Fifty Cent, or I'm not gonna and Kanye West, yeah, whole Con- relationship yeah Kanye with West whole relationship, and then like Ice Ice T is Ice Cube, not Ice T as a whole is a different issue because I don't think Ice Cube is like a fan of Trump. I think he's just sort of trying to work with him, but I think is a, a that never. Uh, Futility, but like you know, I can yeah. I understand his motivations a little bit, even though I don't agree with him. But like the other ones are just like overtly supporting Trump. I'm just like yikes. But I'm like you know, it's not even surprising because we see this happen where like once black folks get a little money or something, they you know some of them just kind of say, okay, well I've made it, so I can kind of leave y'all behind. I made it off the plantation or whatever. But it's like you know, you start you start shucking and jiving for the wrong people, and then it's like you still are part of a system that is still oppressing like you, and you're still a part of. You're still complicit in a system that is not, you know, uplifting people like you. Like just because you managed to get out doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't other there aren't still issues. <laughs> I also think that becoming a billionaire changes a lot of things about your yes. life. You know, I don't know how much money Lil Wayne has, but a yeah. lot. Um, and most of those people we just mentioned, like, um, and I I think that like you know of course they can have any political view they want, but associating with somebody who's actively trying to, you know. Uh, oppress uh, that's you know or, uh, or 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 giving credence to these yeah these lies like you know Trump's like the platinum plan and like he's gonna invest a billion dollars into the black community like what stopped you from doing that four years ago like you know it's just right, like you say right, all these right. things yeah that sounds nice but it almost sounds like a ransom at this point like hey, yeah vote for me black folks and I'll give you some money like it's just like you know okay why should so I believe shallow. that at this point yeah. and it's just like you know like I said that there's obviously plenty of exceptions I mean I would say Beyonce and Jay Z have a combined net worth of I would say well over a billion dollars um and they still seem pretty much for the people which is good but um but yeah I think it it is something it's an interesting aspect um yeah and like I was just gonna say so that's really once you know we're all caught up now um my personal favorites like I have to go back to Kendrick for just a second if you listen to the beginning of Damn at the very the very first track is called Blood and at the end, it quotes a Fox News interview about um, how rap music is is uh, instilling violence in young people. Um, and it goes into uh, DNA, which is such a proud, like, defiant song. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he references, you know, uh, violence throughout it. But I think that it is kind of this, like... It's, a, it's not really tongue-in-cheek, but it's very kind of, like, he's so intentional about the way he uses, like, his critics against themselves, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and, because, like, it ends with, like, one of the reporters going, oh, it's disgusting, like, yeah. um, and he, you know, the there people who have blamed rap for violence in inner cities and, you know, all of this, like, immensely different problems that are not related to, you know, to rap music, um, it's a very intentional usage of that, and I, I just think it's so brilliant. Um, and then uh, XXX, which features U2, um, which is a weird collab, yeah. but um, he, you know, he, it's very interesting. It's very, very much about America as a, you know, as a nation and what where we are today, because he says, you know, look what you taught us. It's murder on my street, your street, back streets, Wall Street, you know, corporate offices, banks. Donald Trump's in office, we lost Barack and promised to never doubt him again, but is America honest or do we bask in sin? Like, I mean, this oh, sounds yeah. like, <laughs> that's why you want a Pulitzer, like, he's an amazing, he's an amazing writer. Yeah. 
Um, but I'd check that one out, definitely. It's kind of, it wasn't a single, so I don't, you know. Yeah. I'd also check out um, Toby Ligray, who I mentioned on the show a couple of times. Um, he's got a lot of good stuff, and um, <coughs> the first song I heard from him was Keep Game, which is one of my favorites of his. And a lot of his stuff is not directly protest-related, but he does do a lot of kind of calling attention to mm-hmm. the plight of black people in the inner city. He's talking about how he grew up poor in Texas, and um, the people he's lost to gun violence, the people he's lost to gang violence, um, the people who are involved in drug dealing now, and just his whole experiences, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, and, he, and he, he's also a very lyrical rapper. Yes. I mean, very, very intelligent, very, very lyrical. Um, and I think that that stuff is worth listening to. Um, I, and honestly, I think that protest music, a song can be almost a protest song without saying, I am against this thing. It can be telling a story about something tragic, and it can be a protest in itself just to tell that strange story. Fruit. Yeah, Strange Fruit, and those songs about, um, you know, starving in the Depression. Like, mm-hmm. literally just telling the story can be a form of protest in itself. Um, yeah, and then I was going to say Everything is Everything by uh, Miss Lauren Hill. Um, mm-hmm. It's another song about, you know, fighting on and um, how can we make, you know, this change when we're being beaten down, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but I think that, I think great protest music can continue to be made. I just think it's hard. Like, I'm not going to say that Beyonce and Kendrick don't have money interests behind them. They have labels. They, mm-hmm. they have people behind them. I just find such authenticity in their music that it's, it feels real to me. It doesn't feel like they've been bought off to write something because mm-hmm. it is not in a record label's best interest to talk about police brutality. Yeah. I just that's just how, not how it is in America right now. It is not that much of a, you know, it, it's not necessarily going to rake in the cash for mm-hmm. them to be honest about things like this. And um, that they have more that the artists who have more of a dedicated following and don't rely so much on chart success or radio play. Uh, have more freedom to do that. Yeah, like, that's true. Both Kendrick and Beyonce are, you know, certainly renowned artists, but not, neither Kendrick nor Beyonce are like necessarily radio artists anymore. I mean, Beyonce. They don't need. She it used to be, but yeah. she really doesn't yeah. need radio play anymore. She can just drop an album and it's just fine on its own. And then Kendrick, same way. I mean, Kendrick is a rapper, so rappers obviously don't get as much airplay. But um, but humble and DNA were radio friendly, and then yeah. he can talk about whatever he wants exactly. on the rest and of the you, album. You want to listen to his album, and then you get the deep cuts, and it's like you, they get more. I think the artists who are like that, where they've got either the underground artists or the artists that are so above ground that they're above the need for chart right. success, are the ones that can be most free. It's the people who are still relying on charting music um, that have to be very careful about what they say. The people who post um, stuff like "Slave to the Rhythm," though, you need to calm down. <laughs> yeah, which you know Taylor Swift, she could put out like an album of her, you know, singing Barney songs, and it would be <laughs> fine. But um, I do think that she is. She's still, I honestly still think she was at that point figuring out her persona and figuring out who she was. And, you know, she was kind of in a, in a transitional period when she wrote that. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think that there, I think that you can still make very powerful statements with music and um, it doesn't have to be commercial um, with bigger artists. Sometimes that you just have to think about what the motives are. Like, uh-huh. do they, do you think they believe this? Does it, does, is it lived out in the rest of their life? Or is it like, you know, it seemed like they made it and then the next day they're going against it, you know, and yeah. what they do. Yeah, is it reflected in, in their persona? And I think that, you know, the idea of music and politics, I actually did a whole course on this in college. It's like, they're so connected, so intertwined, like throughout history, in like multiple countries. I mean, 
in China to this day, it's illegal to sing certain songs because wow. they're like, um, like Mori Hua, which is a very nice song, Jasmine Flower. Literally, it's a beautiful children's song about a jasmine flower, but it became associated with the Hong Kong protesters, and so it was literally oh, banned. And there's oh a sweet gosh. song about a flower. It's a beautiful it's song. It's all connotations. Yeah, yeah, it's the connotations. And so it's and Hua is also another word for China, and so it's kind of a, oh, okay. it's in a Chinese spirit, and the Chinese government has tried to kind of squash it down. Um, and I think the minute you ban something, it's automatically more attractive. And I remember those of you who have read the Hunger Games, there were two yeah. two notable songs in uh, that. Well, actually, no, this one, um, "Hanging Tree," which yes, you know yeah. that was written to represent whole sort of it was it was an illegal song in Pan Am, and it was a song that uh, Caddis's father teaches her when she's young. But then in the movies, it becomes like a whole anthem. Uh-huh. And you know, somebody pointed out. I don't remember where I first read this, but it really kind of clicked. It's um, maybe I just read it on Tumblr or something, but like somebody pointed out kind of what you're saying about the commercialism. It's like, it's very interesting how, so in the movie, like there's two versions of Hanging Tree. Mm-hmm. There was one that was on the radio, like when the movie yeah, came yeah. out, it was on the soundtrack and there was one that was actually used in the movie. And the one in the movie starts out very like sort of earnest. It's like Katniss with a bunch of, you know, beaten down protesters mm-hmm. or whatever. She starts to sing it and they gradually start to sing it with her as they're marching on, you know, the Capitol right, or whatever. Very to, moving. Yeah. To, um, to fight, um, to fight the injustice and to fight the capital. And meanwhile, like the the radio version was like a remix, an yeah. awful remix. It wasn't even very good. It was like they put a trap beat on the are you 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 boom, 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 yeah, and it just it lost all of its like its heart. And it's like this is a perfect example of like a genuine protest song. And then when it becomes commercialized, you're like, yeah, let's yeah, just make this a, a great disco example. party. <laughs> like, you know. Because they, I don't know, I kind of think if you think too much about the lyrics of that song, you might have, start to have some ideas that they're like, let's drop the beat. Exactly. I mean, it's like, literally, it's are you, are you coming to the tree where they hung up a man, they said murder three strange things have happened here, no stranger would it be if you met up at midnight in the hanging tree. It's called the hanging tree. And I'm like talking about a man getting hung for crimes, like, are you, boom, boom, boom. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> a little bit out of touch. Like, exactly. It doesn't feel like it's I mean, imagine something did a trap remix of Strange Fruit, like, no, something Absolutely just ought not, not be done. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I feel like that, I think that a lot of this, the themes in Hunger Games were honestly, honestly went over the heads of yeah, some of them. I definitely did. Because it was like, a very, a very apt story that was kind of treated as an action adventure. Yeah. Um, that was a very, I mean, it was a political statement, really. Yeah. Um, and then there was a whole lot of copycats that came after it. Yeah, definitely. I was so into the Hunger Games for a while. Like, um, they also filmed some near where I grew up. Oh, yeah. And um, I had a friend who was in it. I, yeah, I have. I think his name, because that's it, weird. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Those of us who have grown up in this area of, of the country. Because they filmed over near Shelby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And when I was in Shelby, I went to this little diner where apparently some of the actors came and um, ate uh, chicken. <laughs> Sorry. <Eight>. Chicken. <laughs> chicken. I was like, I thought that there was like fried pickles. That's what it oh, was. Fried, fried pickles. She just spit chicken. out something. Chicken. <laughs> chicken. Sorry, I'm also looking at the cheese bag. <laughs> this episode was brought to you by KFC. <laughs> KFC. Just kidding. I can't remember the last time. I'm just playing some cute game while you're looking up tea facts. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, what tea are you drinking today? I'm drinking some vanilla chai. It's quite tasty. It's actually gone now, but it's good. Delicious. I had an apple tea. Oh, apple tea. Very, uh, very uh, autumnal. Mm. 
Would you like to learn about the largest tea bag? Yes. <laughs> at the time of this writing, the largest tea bag recorded by Guinness World Records weighed in at just over 551 pounds. Wow. And measured 9.8 feet wide by 13 feet high. It could be brew- used to brew over 10,000 or 100,000 cups if you could get it in a cup. I guess they yeah, mean what like. What was the purpose of building that? <laughs> for the record. It was in Saudi Arabia. Um, and they also had the largest cup and the most cups made in one hour was 1,848 by a team of 12 people. Oh. Sometimes Guinness World Records feel, like, unnecessary. I mean, yeah, and they I think... were just like, we want to set it. <laughs> yeah, and I feel so... like they, they ran out of ideas a while, because I used to have a Guinness World Records right I did, too. I feel like they ran out of ideas, and they were just like, uh, the longest time anyone sung the national anthem backwards while hopscotching <laughs> and uh, with their eyes crossed. I'm like, yeah, it, well, it's a record, because no one, one on Earth has ever done that before. Like, right. who cares? <laughs> right. That does, that, nobody needed to do that, actually. <laughs> I was obsessed with that book, though. I loved, like, the longest fingernails. Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. Anyway, well, we hope you guys had a good week, even despite all the craziness. And if you're in another country and you're like, good God, what is America going through? A lot. Same, same. We feel the same way. But, uh, happy uh, middle of November. We're looking forward to Thanksgiving. And uh, please stay safe. Uh, Check out some of the artists that we uh, mentioned this week, and we will look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah. Bye. Bye.